from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I'm Danny Wisentowski. This is before Ellen and before Will and Grace, so before marriage equality and before gay people could serve openly in the military and in the middle of the AIDS crisis. So in the middle of all of this, we were saying to ourselves, what do our lives look like? What could our lives look like? And I think one of the things that I like most about the piece is that overall it was a celebration. For three months in 1989, a musical about gay and lesbian life in St. Louis was the talk of the town. Audiences packed into the St. Marcus Theater to see the groundbreaking production of Some of My Best Friends Are. In the play's closing number, one of the characters steps forward and he's holding a heavy book. He begins to read, reciting from Missouri's criminal statutes, the so-called sexual misconduct law, which at the time prohibited sex between same-sex partners, effectively criminalizing intimacy and labeling queer relationships deviant. The song was called There's a Judge in My Bedroom, and in 1989, it was like nothing a St. Louis audience had ever heard. Deviant sexual intercourse shall be a class A misdemeanor punishable by $1,000 and or up to one year in jail. Hmm, what do you know? There's a judge in my bedroom. There's a cop at the door. There's Governor Ashcroft debating gestation without my approval or representation. Gonna send to Mr. Rehnquist. Names of everyone I ever kissed Gonna throw it open to congressional debate Whenever I decide to accept that date Besides a judge in my bedroom Besides a cop at the door There's a crowd on the board who are experts on sin And they seem determined to come right on in It's William F. Buckley How you doing, Bill? Who's that with you? Why, it's Big George Will It's Phyllis Schlafly coming tonight Jesse Helms, on her right. They're gonna clean up my bookcase and get rid of anybody gay. Like May Sergeant who calls Jason May. Walk with an Oscar Wilde and Rita May. They wanna go through my hard work. And if they're not straight, they gotta go. Goodbye to Sappho and Salminio. El John, Lily Tomlin, and Valentino. They wanna decide who will be my spouse. And get Barney Frank out of the house. I'm getting out of my bedroom. Gonna call up That was the original cast of Some of My Best Friends Are performing the song There's a Judge in My Bedroom in 1989. The play, a rollicking musical review and satire, holds an important place in St. Louis history and LGBTQ history. It appears to be the first time ever that a St. Louis theater company produced a play openly depicting queer culture. 33 years later, last month, on October 20th, the play returned to St. Louis for a one-night-only reunion at the Missouri History Museum, and that reunion brought back nearly the entire original cast to once again embody the characters and songs that had changed their lives. 
And once again, the venue was packed, the satire pointed, the subjects both profound and silly. And still, three decades later, the play feels so relevant, even in ways that its creators never envisioned. And to talk about that legacy of the play and the significance of its recent reunion, we welcome Joan Lipkin, founder and artistic director of That Uppity Theater Company and the co-writer and producer of Some of My Best Friends Are. Joan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Danny. What a pleasure to be here. Joan, start us off with a, a basic overview of this play. What is it about? It is a musical review with scenes about LGBTQ plus life. Um, there was a running motif of a series of scenes with a straight couple named Frank and Sheila who are trying to make their way through an oppressively gay world. Um, and uh, so, and then there were a lot of related songs to that. Uh, so we really were looking at queer life in 1989. Joan, this framing device you just mentioned, this straight couple that finds themselves oppressed in a world run by queer culture and gay people, this kind of reversal, why was that important to have as a framing device? And, and how did you come up with that? I just think that it, it when you turn things upside down or use a sort of a fun, funny house mirror, it makes us possible to see things in a different way. And, and then it, it also connected all the materials. So in the first scene, they try to pick each other up in the park, and they were, they're harassed by gay people. Oh. <laughs> so and called some very bad names. Goodness. Yeah. yeah. And this theme that runs through this play of what it's like to be othered, what it's like to live in a society that, that doesn't recognize you, that the song that we just listened to, There's a Judge in My Bedroom, really hits that point um, in a really direct way about laws that criminalized you know, what queer people could do, the relationships they could have. Take us back through that song. What was going on in 1989, and what was going on in the law that was making life for queer people difficult and scary? Well, you have to remember that this is before Ellen and before Will and Grace, so before uh, images of LGBTQ plus people were popularized and seen as just part of society. Um, there was the sexual misconduct law, which criminalized people uh, and made it, it made it possible that somebody could be arrested and put in jail uh, with a huge fine. Um, but it was also before marriage equality and before gay people could serve openly in the military and in the middle of the AIDS crisis. So in the middle of all of this, we were saying to ourselves, what do our lives look like? What could our lives look like? And, and I think one of the things that I like most about the piece is that it actually was, even though some of the scenes were poignant, some of the scenes were very pointed, overall it was a celebration and it was joyful. Uh, and people came together, and they laughed, and they felt good, and they recognized themselves in ways that that they had rarely had an opportunity, certainly in live performance, and, and definitely not um, on television and in film. Joan, the song that we just listened to, Judge in My Bedroom, it has so many of these characters and references to people who some of our audience might recognize names like Phyllis Schlafly or, or Jesse Helms. Uh, but these were the cast of, of pundits, but pe people who were trying to enforce this sort of cultural notion of who was allowed to partic participate, who wasn't. And they were the ones who wanted to send a judge into the bedroom. Uh, did it feel fun to call those people out? It feels really good. <laughs> it feels really good. But I have to say, Danny, that I could sing this song to you with similar sentiment and different characters today. So... Yeah, this song is still relevant. We would just like rewrite it slightly. 
Before the reunion last month, I got a chance to talk to actor Bill Ebbesmeyer, who was part of the original 1989 cast and who we just heard singing about a judge in his bedroom, along with fellow cast members Jonas Moses, Kate Durbin, Terry Meadows, Steve Malloy, Mary Schnitzler, and Cynthia Jinks. Now, when I talked to Bill Ebbesmeyer, and I got a chance to talk with him about what this play meant for him, and I asked him about taking the stage for that first time at St. Marcus Theatre 33 years ago. Once the show opened, it really did just explode. The audiences adored what we were doing. They saw the truth that we were seeing, and they saw the fact that we could laugh at ourselves as gay and lesbian and laugh at the fact that this could really be something good. And the audiences embraced us like we were just the best things that hit St. Louis, and we loved it because we did. We embraced them right back because it was one of those things that we just felt their love, and we had to give it back. That was actor Bill Ebbesmeyer, who was part of the 1989 production, Some of My Best Friends Are, and Bill spoke to me earlier uh, last month from the Missouri History Museum, where it was staging a one-night-only reunion. Joan, you we just heard Bill talk about the love that he felt that he received from the audience back in 1989. Is that what you felt? It was incredible. I mean, uh, people would come and we used to joke that we would should have a frequent flyer uh, badge or, or card because people would come and often they would come back repeatedly. They would have their own experience and it would move and engage them so that then they would want to bring back family members and neighbors and, and, and friends, often as a way of coming out to them or to saying to them, this is what my world looks like. But it, it didn't start out that way. Once we opened, it was a huge success. But the lift to try to open it was really arduous. And you had some actual trouble casting this production and, and or even getting coverage of it. How did you get, get through that? Well, here's what happened. Um, w- we advertisers we needed advertising because we had no funding and so advertisers potential advertisers would hang up on me um, <laughs> um uh i think a lot of performers whether they identified as lgbtq plus or not were apprehensive about being in it because they thought that it might brand them in some way that they thought would be negative and the mainstream media was extremely resistant and and I remember talking to the then uh, entertainment editor at the Post-Dispatch who just blatantly refused to cover it and he said this is not appropriate for a family newspaper and I said well I'm in a family no (laughs) no I I said to him I, I mean that could have been one thing I said to him but actually what I said to him was how can you reject something that you have neither seen nor read? Mm. And, and it, it, was, um, it was frustrating, but it was also angering. And so Tom Clear and I actually took that experience, and in fine Brechtian style, we embedded that experience into the opening of the show in a piece called No Billing. And, and Tom Clear, he was your co-writer for this production. He was. He wrote the music and the lyrics, and his work is just tremendous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and this play, it has it's self-referential, and it has these political messages, like you know the judge in the bedroom and referencing these laws. But it, it has this playful quality, and it even plays with stereotypes. Um, there's a song where a lesbian is singing an ode to her favorite flannel shirt. Um, or, as we'll hear now, a gay man played by again Bill Ebbesmeyer singing a solo about his unrequited crush on a St. Louis Hoosier. Hoosier boy, I love you, but you never look at me when I look at you. 
lose your boy. I love you so. When you're not at Grand and Gravoy, where do you go? Night falls on Tower Grove Park. Who's your silhouettes are standing in the dark? See you there is all it would take to make me eat forever at a steak and shake. went to Roosevelt, majored in glue. I love you so. Wherever you go, whatever you do, when you look around, I'll be there. That was Bill Ebbesmeyer performing Hoosier Boy last month at a reunion of the play Some of My Best Friends Are at the Missouri History Museum. And we're talking about that 1989 play with its creator, Joan Lipkin, who is the founder and artistic director of that uppity theater company in St. Louis. Joan, that song is so funny and so sweet and goofy. And I, I saw you putting your a hand on your head and, and singing along to these lyrics. And just tell, where did that song come from? Well, I mean, Tom Clear, he he just did brilliant work. And what I love is that the music is done in a variety of styles. So this was sort of like a, a 1950s boy doo-wop kind of song. And the guys are dancing around on stage in these hot pink t-shirts and he faints from desire <laughs> at the end he faints from desire at the end and it was um, choreographed by our wonderful music uh, director Larry Presgrove who also came in for the reunion um, you know we asked ourselves what are the elements of our lives and what are some of the things that we want to cover and in some instances we were actually sort of prescient and uh, for example, there was a piece um, where the the two two of the women argue about who is going to be butcher femme, and they decide that actually they neither one of them really wants to occupy that all the time. What they really want is to be Tina Turner, <laughs> <laughs> and and trade parts, you know, so they can do that. And so it was it was really about when you when you sit and you think about the subject matter about roles, about gender, about desire, about family, about oppression, um, about parenthood. Just, there's an enormous amount of stuff. We need to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue listening to our conversation about the legacy of Some of My Best Friends Are with theater director Joan Lipkin. Welcome back. We're talking about the groundbreaking 1989 play, Some of My Best Friends Are, which, at the time, was the first play to openly depict queer culture in St. Louis theater. The play's creator, Joan Lipkin, sat down with producer Danny Wisentowski earlier this week. 
one of the the really interesting parts about this production is the cast you know included both you know in terms of the actors and actresses gay and lesbian actors and actresses and and straight uh, yes. actors and actresses and you know when I spoke to Bill Ebbesmeyer last month you know he is a gay man and he talked about you know what it meant for him you know in that moment in 1989 to play this character in a play about that community I loved it because it gave me a, a voice for myself um, I was I had never fully come out to everyone in my family at that point. And so having this opportunity to play this character, my mother saw the show and loved it. She had seen a show a few years earlier where I played a gay character, but I played an evil gay character. And she hated that show because of the fact that I was playing an evil character, I think. Not necessarily that I was gay, but that I was playing an evil gay character. And this, she laughed and had a good time with it and really embraced the show as well. I think through this show, I was able to come out easier to my family. And that was, again, Bill Ebbesmeyer, who I interviewed last month during the rehearsal of the reunion performance of Some of My Best Friends Are. Joan, one of the points that Bill just brought up there is that there have been gay or gay-coded characters in a lot of theater and a lot of movies, but in a lot of times they are evil. They are the villains. These are gay tropes and characters who are made by people who don't respect them or are not part of their community. And that's just the opposite of what happened in this production. Well, I, I think everything goes back to who, who, who are the creators, right? So if you are um, part of a culture, you understand it, uh, it, the good, the bad, the foibles, you, you understand it affectionately, um, and you don't necessarily want everything about it to be negative, but you do want to uh, sort of aim a critical lens at your own community at the same time that you're being supportive. But it's very different when somebody doesn't have a lot of experience with a community and they try to write about it. The language might be different. Um, the assumptions might be different. Um, but, I, you know, so Bill, this was a place that he could be on stage and be himself. Well, he plays many gay characters, actually, in this. But Larry Presgrove, our, our wonderful musical director, said the same thing. It was the first time that he had been able to uh, take part in something and be his fullest self as as a gay man. He was in the process of coming out when he worked on this. And so I think that those things make a difference. But when you talk about these tropes and and the, the banality and the evilness, uh, in a lot of previous lesbian work, uh, the lesbians all die. <laughs> they die or yeah. they're killed. I mean, this is not the message that we want to send out. You know, we wanted to send out a very different kind of message. Joan, you know, things are still changing today, yeah. but I think a lot of folks, they expect, you know, if there's a queer a queer role in a movie, that it's played by a queer actor. And that's not how things were, were in 1989, as you were just describing. But in general, looking back on it, are there parts of this play that you wish had been more inclusive? I think that, that it was pretty inclusive. I always ask myself how we can involve more artists of color in anything that I do, although we were an integrated cast. But... What was wonderful about this particular cast is that the uh, the people who were not who did not identify as gay or bisexual in the cast were very open to doing it, and that was part of the way that we we made casting decisions. We wanted people who would love the work, and ultimately, this cast really loved each other. Uh, but if you have people that are resistant to it, why would you cast them? Um, the the question of 
of casting specificity with regard to sexual orientation or gender representation are serious questions. They're legitimate questions, especially when a lot of people um, are denied opportunities to, to be involved. And so uh, when you're looking especially at gender representation, um, it's, you know, it, it's, it's an issue. Mm-hmm. It's an issue. Um, and it's not, a, it's not a simple one to address. Joan, I wanted to talk about the reunion uh, that, that yeah. just happened uh, it was two weeks ago. How did that come about? And, and why, why was now the time uh, to put this back on stage and to bring these, these characters and these amazing songs back for the St. Louis audience? Why after 30 years? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, here's the thing, Danny. I, despite my pretty large body of work that I have done over the past several decades, I am still asked about some of my best friends are. And so um, uh, I had different reasons for not doing it uh, over the past decades. My first one was that I didn't want to compare. I didn't want people to be in a position of comparing really deep, precious memories of, of something uh, with something that might not match up to their expectations. Then the next decade, <laughs> mm-hmm. the next de- decade, I thought, uh, oh, I wonder if this is out of out of date. Is this no aspersions on, on the museum, on the history museum, which I love, but has this become a museum piece? Uh, and so I, and then I was working on all kinds of other things. But then as time went on, and more people were asking me about it, and I was really aware that the museum is working on this exhibit that will open in 2024 called Gateway to Pride, and I'm um, on you know several committees to try and think about this. I thought maybe it really is a good time for us to reflect because it gave us an opportunity to reflect on many things, not just on the piece itself, but where we were historically, where we are in this particular moment, uh, and we were going to do it for the 30th anniversary, uh, and uh, and then the pandemic hit, and so we delayed. So I celebrated some of my best friends are, and the 30th anniversary by actually making a piece for and with the queer community in Belgrade and Sarajevo hmm. uh, wow. that summer. Um, and for me, it was a way of trying to give back to uh, a community that was uh, more nascent in their civil rights movement and a way that I could sort of honor the intense work that we had done 30 years before. And then the plan was I was going to come back here and then we were going to put this up and then the pandemic hit. And when it did, when that reunion did happen at the Missouri History Museum, I I was there and Every seat was filled. That that yeah. room was rocking. They loved what was on the stage, and it, it did not feel like a, a historical production. Um, it, and one person in that audience uh, who was there was Rodney Wilson. And in 1989, Rodney was a college student living in Cape Girardeau, and he drove to St. Louis not really knowing what he'd find at the theater. I was worried about everything in 1989, and sometimes I forget how fearful I was and what a rough time it was. It was frightening because I had not been ever to a piece of what we today would call queer art. So going into a theater that I was not familiar with in a city I wasn't familiar with to see this show I knew nothing about that was about a world I was only beginning at that time myself to understand. But the show, of course, 
you know, set people at ease immediately. It's, it's such a beautiful show. Rodney Wilson is now a history professor, and after seeing Some of My Best Friends Are in 1989, he went on to found Nationwide LGBTQ History Month. When I spoke with him earlier this week, he said that reunion two weeks ago, it felt like so much more than just a night of theater. So it was a gathering of the community that was in 1989, bringing us all together the community that is today in 2022, and putting us in the same location. And I think the energy in the room was so powerful because all of us were back, and we were, in a sense, reliving that really important moment from so many years ago. And we were laughing at the same jokes, and we were mesmerized by the same uh, turn of phrase. And I think the energy that came from that was amazing. And when the evening ended, I think we all felt like we had been uh, to a high school reunion and we got reacquainted with one another and we got reacquainted with a time that once was a time in some respects we've outgrown and we've moved beyond, but a time also that we still hear echoes of in today's conversations and today's news stories. So while 33 years have passed and we've had tremendous progress, uh, there are still uh, reminders in that 1989 play of how there's still work that we need to do and certain obstacles we still need to overcome. That was history professor Rodney Wilson, who spoke to me this week about attending the 1989 play Some of My Best Friends Are, and then, 33 years later, seeing the reunion of the play last month at the Missouri History Museum. Um, Joan, Rodney brought up several really interesting points, and a lot of it is connections between 1989 and today. And you know that that law that Missouri had that made same-sex sexual relationships illegal—that decision could still be rolled back. Um, and it was mentioned in the Dobbs decision that repealed Roe v. Wade. And in that decision, the justices wrote, maybe we should reevaluate some of these other foundational Supreme Court decisions. And one of those being the Supreme Court law that eventually uh, really struck down laws like Missouri had that allowed them to police uh, the types of relationships people had. Is that connection something that is on your mind now? Are we right back to that year? I am very concerned. I'm very concerned about where things are going. There's absolutely a relationship between bodily autonomy for LGBTQ plus people and uh, um, people who can bear children uh, and uh, and Roe v. Wade. It's it, uh, it, it's stunning to me that we are back in this moment. And so, yeah, he, it's not just echoes of where we were. I think that, that this is one of the reasons why, actually, six years ago, I started um, a new organization called Dance the Vote, which uses the arts to promote voting literacy and to get out the vote, because we need to make sure that people are voting for representatives that will represent their interests. Does it feel a bit like a time machine? You know, we, we in, in the play, you were, you know, mocking Phyllis Schlafly, but, you know, that Phyllis Schlafly may be gone, but many of, of the things that she pushed for and many of the organizations she's involved with are back and are having influence now. And the notion of let's remove uh, books from uh, schools, this notion of grooming, where just by exposing children or anyone to the concept of gay people existing, you must be turning them. You must be, you know, this is somehow nefarious. This was what your play was in a way mocking. Is it disappointing that we're back at this point? It's, 
It's very disappointing. It's it's frustrating. It's angering. It's all of that. And the thing is, is that we mention specific people, uh, but as we understand, certain conservative, um, reactionary, frankly authoritarian strains are not just about a single person. They're really about a movement in society. And that is what's going on right now. It's interesting to hear Rodney talk about it uh, because uh, there were a lot of previous attendees who came last month. But I asked the audience, I said, how many of you have seen this before? And probably easily a third of the audience had not seen it. And so what excites me also is how they connected with that material. He brought a student uh, who's 19 years old who said that he loved this play and that it spoke to him and that he thought it was fortunate and un- unfortunate that it's still relevant. But I couldn't know these things, Danny. When I put it up, I was watching the audience and I was watching the cast and I, I, I didn't know what my own response or the audience's would be until we actually did it. Mm -hmm. Rodney described it like a high school reunion. Is that what it felt like for you? Well, there was a lot of love in the audience. And there was love because there was a sense of recognition. So even people who don't necessarily hang out together were waving at each other and hugging each other. And then because so much of what I do is about community building, we requested that there be tabling uh, in the Grand Hall before the event. And so we had many organizations like HRC and Promo and Squish, which is a new queer hotline, and... uh, um, Flag and, and many other organizations were up there. We had an action booth um, at the back of the theater, Danny. It was called the Uppity Action Booth. And we used to give tickets away to different organizations so that they could organize on their own behalf. And that part of it felt very much like we're coming back around again with what we did in the Grand Hall. Mm-hmm. And that, that was something that you had done for the, the original 89 production. Yes, we mm-hmm. had this uppity action booth. Mm-hmm. You know, one, one thing that struck me during the, the audience Q&A is, is that I think the message that was repeated in several different ways was people saying, we want more of this. We, <laughs> we, not only do we want more of this, we want more of this in a way that reflects our today, reflects the population's. Um, you know, that weren't, you know, in the center of that play in 89, you know, whether it's people of color or whether it's the expanded, you know, rainbow flag, you know, transgender people, non, non-binary people, people who I just identify as queer, that widening circle of, of wanting to, people wanting to see themselves reflected on something on stage. Are you thinking about a sequel or is, is this pushing you to wonder how could this play exist again in, in this year? It actually excited me that people were offering ideas about what they wanted to see because it meant that they were invested. Now, normally, a playwright does not want to hear something like that. They don't want somebody writing their play. But I was sort of thinking about this differently, and I could see what the omissions were as I was watching that night. I could see that we did what we did with the information and and the understanding that we had back then. We called it a gay and lesbian review for people of all preferences. Okay, well, that is expansive, but where was the B? Where was the T? Where was the I, right? right. Um, so in this moment, in this time, two of the things that have struck me the most has been that that this is an occasion to reflect and reframe 
uh, and foremost in my mind has been the emergence of new gender identities, which I think is very important, and also an overdue racial reckoning. And so if I were to go back into this, I would expand and think in these ways. I wrote a play called The State of Marriage, which was about people in Missouri taking buses to Iowa where they could legally get married and then coming back to Missouri where it was not recognized. And this was before, obviously, before marriage equality took place. Um, So then I say to myself, well, doesn't equality mean that if we can have, quote, gay marriage, can't we also have gay divorce? (laughs) This seems to me a piece that needs to be written. Or when we think about love songs, and I think Hoosier Boy is a kind of anonymous love song. Well, I would love to write a song for Amy Schneider and everybody who fell in love with Amy Schneider when they watched Jeopardy, right? Mm. And, And who Amy Schneider represents to them. There is just, there's no limit to the kind of material that could be written. One of the things, Danny, that I think is really important is that It could be said, well, you can turn on Netflix, you can go to the movies, watch television, and you have all kinds of queer representation now. That's absolutely true, and that is an improvement. But what you don't have when you see a movie is the experience of sitting in an audience of several hundred people where you're laughing at the same time, maybe you're crying at the same time, where your heartbeats actually synchronize in this magnificent way, this magnificent nonviolent way, right, in which you are having a joint experience that transforms you and transforms everybody that you're sitting around. That is probably one of the reasons why people came to see Some of My Best Friends Are as much as, as, as they did. I mean, they, came, they left the theater and they felt great. People felt so good last month when they were leaving. You could just see the glow and and people talking to neighbors and friends and people that they didn't know on the way out. These are the things that just sort of just thrill me. Joan Lipkin is the founder and artistic director of that uppity theater company and the co-writer and producer of Some of My Best Friends Are. Joan, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you, Danny. episode was produced by Danny Wisentowski. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis.
Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.